0: Hello, and welcome to Radio Free CSU, the official podcast of the California Faculty Association. My name is Audrina Redmond, and I'm your host for this 10-part series, Stronger Together, here on Radio Free CSU. This series is inspired by the intentional anti-racism and social justice transformation CFA began in late 2016. In each episode, we'll discuss one of our 10 guiding principles with a CFA leader activist. However, we have something special planned for you this time. Our hope is that you too will be inspired to engage in anti-racism and social justice work and and join us again for more conversations about why an anti-racism, social justice transformation is necessary. Today, we are joined by Tenselyn Sims of the Service Employees International Union Racial Justice Center and Anika Fascia of Demos and Demos Action. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, Anika?
1: Thank you, Audrina. Yes, my name is Anika Fascia, and I'm the project manager of the Race Class Narrative Project, both with Demos and Demos Action.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Tinsel?
2: Yes, and so I am Tinsel and Sims, as, as you said, and I am a communications coordinator at SEIU that works in partnership with the Racial Justice Center.
0: I'm going to let Anika explain. Uh, what is the work that brought us all here?
1: Thank you, um, Audrina. So I want to make sure that I give a shout out to our principals of the project. This was definitely not um, done in isolation. Uh, we uh, worked with Ian Haney Lopez, the author of Dog Whistle Politics, also a law professor at Berkeley, and nationally known uh, linguist, not Shankar Osorio of um, ASO Communications. So um, they actually had a conversation, the two of them, um, from the intellectual underpinnings of Ian's book, Dog Whistle Politics, which basically talks through the history of how racism has been used very effectively as a divide and conquer tactic of the the right wing or the conservative um, side of politics in order to build vast amounts of economic wealth therefore exacerbating economic inequality to levels that we've never seen before. And so through their conversation, it became very clear that we needed to highlight this strategy and create an alternative, and that particularly after the, and especially after the 2016 election where the dog whistle became a bullhorn, was that this was the time more more now than ever that we needed to no longer be talking about should we or should we not talk about race, but when, uh, but we need to talk about race now and how can we most effectively do that, which was the impetus of this project. And um, given Ian Haney Lopez's uh, relationship to Heather McGee, um, who was the former executive director of Demos and Demos Action, she was a st- also a student of his, um, and he being a senior fellow it made the most sense for DEMOS and DEMOS Action to be the organization where this project was housed.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. So I've, I have had the pleasure of hearing some talks and seeing the works and reading the works, and I think it's um, really transformative. Not to overuse that word here, but this really is transformative. So let me... to What did you find? What What did you find from let's say, the general population, and then what did you find when we talked to union households? So, Anika, what did we find in the general population?
1: Sure. So we, we did uh, this both in a qualitative phase and a quantitative phase. The qualitative phase, um, which was done in partnership with Brilliant Corners Research Strategies, Cornell Belcher, um, where we did 14 focus groups, both um, in states Ohio, Minnesota, California, California, Georgia, and then from those focus groups we really got a sense of the anecdotal evidence of what, where people are at in terms of having these conversations, and then took that knowledge into a quantitative phase where we did a national online dial survey where we, um, rep- we did a sample of 1,500 representative adults in the United States with oversamples in the African American community the Latino community, millennials, and low-propensity voters. And we also had the opportunity to do this at the state level in Ohio, Minnesota, California, and Indiana. So there was five surveys fielded at once. Um, What we learned from the national survey, which is what I'll speak to on this podcast, was that we can actually beat out a common opposition uh, narrative and the status quo, colorblind, economic populism message Kind of the familiarity message of the established Democratic side, um, with a message that leads with race and class um, as inseparable notions, um, and that that's a pretty huge feat. To I think the common knowledge has been to avoid race, to not talk about race, um, particularly among the Democratic establishment, one for fear of backlash that we would lose even more white working class voters or white voters in general, which is. May, some may say is why we lost the election in 2016, um, and that class is the issue that um, cuts across all race, and that cu- cuts across all races. And which is why we need to be leading with class and not race. And I think we flipped that that uh, notion on its head with this research, which I, I feel like is is incredibly um, monumental.
0: So when you say talk about race, does that mean? Are you saying instead of saying um, general working people, uh, for example, you may, we should say working people who are white, black, brown, and 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 Asian? Is that what you mean?
1: So we great a uh, great question, Adriana. So we asked um, we approached how we talk about race in many iterations through the focus groups, and what we landed on is that. When we say no matter where we come from, what we look like, whether white, black, or brown, we all want the same things. I'm paraphrasing some of the language there, but that is what we mean by naming race. And then we move into the problem statement, which is the use of racial scapegoating as a tactic by the right. And by that I mean... Um, people in power, powerful um, politicians and their lobbyists that pay for them are pointing the finger at poor families, black people, new immigrants, in order to have economic gains while we all stand aside you know, in our hard times. And so what, but, uh, what we learned here is that strategic racism is not a familiar concept to the average individual, those who are not living, breathing, working racial justice work. And so just to simply name racism or strategic racism does not relay what we want it to relay. I mean, trust me, in my heart of racial justice hearts, I wish that's what we could come to the table with. But the average individual in the United States understands racism as animosity between two people of different races. And so in order for us to connect with folks on how strategic racism is being used as a tool, we learned that the best way to do that is through the, the notion of racial scapegoating. That pe- people in power are pointing the finger at people like me, a woman of color, new immigrants, black people, poor people, um, you name it, in order to distract from who's actually creating all the economic inequality that we're all dealing with today.
0: Tenslin, what does this study mean
2: for labor, for unions? Well, uh, in 2016, the SEIU members and member leaders passed a resolution that essentially said we cannot achieve economic justice without racial justice. And what that meant is that economics and um, issues of class and of race are intertwined and they're inseparable. And if we think that we can just do one without the other, we are kind of fooling ourselves in certain ways. We have to be talking about race and um, class together because that is the way um, SEIU members and working people across the country experience things. And um, move, moving in that direction, the Racial Justice Center wanted to figure out how do we do that? How do we talk about it in a way that galvanizes people and bring people closer together um, to, to build a powerful movement that moves all working people um, to have a livable wage and benefits and things that our families depend on. And what we found in that was that Demos was <laughs> looking at a similar question. And we began talking to them and we began saying this what we what they're doing there definitely have applications to um, union members, and so that's how we joined together and decided that we wanted to be a part of this research. And for us, it's really looking at um, what's happening and what's the lived experiences of working people that are part of the labor union movement. And that experience is not very different from um, people that are outside of the movement. We all want the same things. Um, we want to be able to have... Um, Healthcare. We want to be able to have um, time off of work to take care of our loved ones or take have sick days. Um, we want to be able to have wages and we want to have a voice on our job. And we want to be able to have those things together. And we had to figure out how do we talk about it. And this research has helped us in many ways figure out how we can do a better job of that. And so while we w- were looking for this, how do we utilize this in the work that we're doing to galvanize people around the movement of building powerful working people? Um, we look, we approached the study that we could learn from it, and then now we're also saying, and we want to share it with other folks right? Which as is, well. Yeah, which is what you've been doing and, and what we're doing
0: here. So... Anika, you, you talked a little bit about the results, the national results, and uh, that it's important to uh, talk about race specifically, call out those races, and be cl- race, race not racist, but races, um, as well as I clearly identify the 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 other side, I and mean, we would call them the the greedy rich or. The
1: certain politicians, certain
0: politicians,
1: lobbyists that pay
0: for them. Lob- okay, <laughs> okay. And so, did that message, uh, uh, Tenslin, is that the same message that resonated with union members when they were uh, surveyed? I guess that's the right word, when they were surveyed.
2: Yes. Um, what we found was that um, the union members repre- uh, resonated in the messages in the same way that um, what we would call the general population of the sur- survey. Um, we did not find anything that would um, make us think that this is not something we should be talking about with union members. We found out that a race class narrative was much more powerful when speaking about how working people could come together. And that didn't matter if they were in the union or if they were outside of the union. And so um, we are are uh, being cognizant of this as we're continuing to have conversations and as we continue to try to move um, an agenda forward. And that's what we found um, across the board.
0: So we use a term here that I don't think we'd used before, which is the race-class narrative. Can, we, can you clarify a little more what that means, race-class narrative?
1: Sure. Um, so you know, I just want to reiterate the, the impetus of this project was that we are swimming and living and breathing in a race-baiting environment. And by that, I mean where race is being used to separate us, to divide us, for the economic gains of the few, and the reason why we decided that we needed to have empirical evidence about talking about a race class narrative was we were responding to this race baiting environment through a class only message, and so it was it was pretty much falling on um, you know falling flat because if you hear you know someone from the right saying Ms. Thirteen is coming to kill you. And then an hour later, someone from the left comes and knocks on your door, and they say, "Debt-free college." Well, the person is thinking, "Well, I don't care about debt-free college because MS13 just shot me." So our messages were not responding to the race-baiting culture that is everywhere. Um, and so we needed evidence um, and you know, findings to support that like this class only um, plan. Is is not working. It's no. Long, it's never worked, and that we really need to bring um, forward an alternative narrative that speaks to the race baiting environment that we are living and breathing in. So that is speaking to race in a in a affirming multiracial social solidarity way, and speaks to the economic prosperity that we all deserve. And so our thought was that this is not a race or class debate. This is not even a race and class debate. This is race, class, inseparable, reinforcing each other, um, and needing to tell the story from that perspective.
0: Thank you. Thank you for, for explaining race, the race, class narrative to us. So what can people do? What can our union members do? And they're members of the general population, so what can people do?
2: Tenselyne. Well, I think the first thing we have to stop fooling ourselves about is that whether or not it's optional to talk about race, right? A lot of times we treat the conversation about race as if it's something that we can do or we cannot do. Um, And the truth is that that's not real, right? The conversation about race is happening. And then unless we're having, having that conversation too, we're conceding that the narrative that's being put in place by the opposition that is the narrative that is that it's real and that's the narrative that's going to resonate with people and so I think that's the first thing we have to realize is that we are having lives that are being impacted by racialized issues and if we just try to talk about them as economics only issues we are missing the point and we are conceding defeat.
0: Right. I'm I'm I'm, I want more of this, and I want to, I hope you all will, are, will share this, will listen more than once, and that you will go and find more information. So where can people learn more?
1: So uh, this information is all completely open source. It is all the, so there's two parts of this. There's a C3 um, aspect to the project, which can be, all of it can be found on Demos's website at demos.org where you have all the data, we have handouts, we have um, uh, links to the state findings, and then we also have a video that brings these messages to life that was done in collaboration um, through the Peoria Project. And then for the partisan um, aspect of the data, you can find that on our Demos Action website at demosaction.org. That's the C4 aspect of the research. If you have um, specific needs where you would like to incorporate this into your work, whether that's through door knocking scripts, blogs, op-eds, you want to bring a training to your team or have a webinar for your staff, please email us at rcn at demos.org and rcn at demosaction.org for the political side.
0: And so, Teslin, for people who are looking for specific union support around this work, where would they reach out to find more information?
2: Um, everyone can reach out to the Racial Justice Center, and the email address there is rjc at seiu.org. Right.
0: thank you. So thank you so much. I've been joined today by Tencelin Sims of the SEIU Racial Justice Center and Anika Fascia of Demos and Demos Action. My name is Ardrina Redmond. I've been your host. That's the end of our podcast for today, but do join us again for more conversations discussing the guiding principles of CFA's anti-racism and social justice transformation. Remember, transformation is an action verb, meaning a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. Thank you.